2023, a financial entity called Silvergate Capital announced that its bank, Silvergate Bank, would wind down operations and voluntarily liquidate its assets. This was not a complete surprise for those in the know, as Silvergate, the parent company and its bank, was a fintech-first entity, which in this context meant it was a crypto-first entity. And crypto assets, ranging from Bitcoin to Ethereum to dollar-pegged tokens like Tether, have been under increased pressure and scrutiny of late, following a fairly mixed 2022, which culminated with the collapse of cryptocurrency exchange FTX in November of that year, a collapse that has sparked an investigation into the excesses and illegal activities of the company's founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, and some of his associates. That investigation has shown, among other things, that many of the folks atop these companies are knowingly and intentionally doing crimes of various sorts, and that many of these entities are tied together in a fairly fundamental root system-like fashion. Weakness in one often represents increased risk for another, and the collapse of one often leads to the collapse of several of its neighbors. Thus, the implosion and picking apart of FTX and its associated entities like Alameda Research has been a slow-motion disaster for the wider crypto space, some of which was heavily reliant on FTX and its resources, some of which is only tangentially connected to the exchange, if at all, and some of which has merely had the bad fortune to be operating in an industry that was already on somewhat precarious footing, especially regulatorily, but which now is attempting to operate on an active, fairly violent economic, cultural, and legal fault line. Leading up to, but especially following, the collapse and FTX and those behind it, a slew of other crypto world pillars have fallen, and Silvergate, a bank that focused on providing intermediary services to crypto companies, essentially allowing them to convert digital assets into real-world assets, while also holding the dollars that backed crypto assets, which are often required for such things to function and have credibility, was just one of the more practically important of the bunch, as the services it provided these companies, companies that are sometimes looked down upon and even even banned by conventional financial infrastructure, those services were tricky to get elsewhere, and especially at this scale and with this perception of mainstream financial world credibility. Following this collapse, the primary concern was that the issues plaguing the world of crypto, including but not limited to their speculative and precarious nature, and the wild swings and peaks and valleys and value that come with such speculation, might have found its way to the rest of the financial world, those conversion services allowing the risk associated with crypto to infect a more traditional bank, and thus the conventional banking system as a whole. There were also increasing concerns that an impending update to the U.S. financial system, which would in practice allow for instant transfers, much like crypto assets offer, could usurp these assets by basically doing what they do, but better, and in a more secure, integrated, regulated, and thus safe fashion. Despite the newsworthiness of this banking world disaster, and the concerns associated with it, though, the news of Silvergate's collapse was in a matter of days almost completely overshadowed by news from elsewhere in the banking world. 
What I'd like to talk about today is the bank run that caused that new round of news and the underlying banking world issues it seems to have brought to the surface. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Axios, and it's entitled, The Largest Bank Run in History. On March 9th, 2023, on that single day, depositors at Silicon Valley Bank withdrew about $42 billion from their collective accounts. For perspective, the previous largest ever bank run was in 2008, when depositors at Washington Mutual withdrew about $16.7 billion over the course of 10 days. So this new, again, $42 billion withdrawn in a single day was a fairly spectacular, record-breaking event. The story of this epic bank run turned out to be less financially in the weeds than many prognosticators originally assumed. It would seem to have been mostly the consequence of a close-knit group of venture capitalists and the startup founders they work with all being exposed to some questionable but not deadly numbers that the SVB higher-ups had snuck into a recent report. These numbers said, in essence, that the bank had bought some assets that were slow-growing and logical for a low-interest-rate environment, which is where we were until just recently, when the Fed started trying to clamp down on inflation rates by rapidly and dramatically increasing interest rates, and because of those investments that no longer made as much sense in this new interest rate paradigm, the bank was a bit short, something like $1.8 to $2 billion from where it needed to be and would thus undertake a share sale to make up for that loss to bolster its balance sheet. Now, to be clear, these investments they made would have eventually, over the long haul, paid out just fine. It's just that in the short haul, they wouldn't pay out full sticker price. The potential price paid out decreased because of that changing interest rate situation, and that left the bank with less money on hand than it would have otherwise had, which is not good if it were to suddenly need to pay out huge sums of money to depositors which isn't something that generally happens, but on a theoretical level, sure, this is a bit worrying. If you have money there, and if you have money beyond the FDIC's $250,000 insurable limit. And that limit is important here, because Silicon Valley Bank, unlike most other banks, was heavily weighted toward uninsured funds. It catered to its Silicon Valley startup neighbors by offering all sorts of cash lending, money depositing, stake-taking incentives, and as a result, many venture capitalists pushed the companies they invested in to stash all their money at Silicon Valley Bank. So while many banks have some accounts that go far above that quarter of a million dollar cap, and within that limit, if anything happens to a bank, the government will cover your money, but not beyond that limit. While many banks have accounts that are not fully covered by that government insurance program because they're just packed to the brim with cash, SVB had a lot of uninsured deposits. About 93.8% of its total deposits were not insured by the government, making it the most uninsured bank in the United States, which again is not necessarily a bad or worrying thing most of the time. It just means that a lot of its deposits are huge sums of money of the sort startups are handed by investors all at once. That's the way these sorts of companies tend to get 
these investments. So these companies and their investors panicked at this news, in part because they were not conventional depositors, and the bank was not a conventional bank. It was heavily overloaded with non-government-insured deposits, and that meant in the off chance the bank collapsed, most of these depositors, according to how the rules work, would not get most of their money from the government's insurance pot. They would get $250,000 of their possibly millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, money that they generally, because of how startups tend to work, need to have liquid, available to buy out other companies and make similar investments quickly, but also just to pay their office rent, their server space, pay their employees, and so on. In the aftermath of this collapse, VCs and startup founders are being blamed for this bank run, because if they had not panicked in this way, when they all heard about this shortfall at once and started telling each other about it, there would have been no bank run, and the bank would probably be able to stabilize itself. Its on-hand money shortfall was a short-term thing. But looking at the situation through the lens of these companies and investors who could lose all or almost all of their resources if they decided to not pull their money, and everyone else did, you can see how they might want to be one of the villains who collapsed the bank that they'd long worked with rather than being one of the noble but broke saps who decided to be a community hero instead of opting to look out for number one. The risk analysis there is pretty brutal. Fortunately, for those who had deposits in SVB, the government decided, although it flies in the face of rules they put into place after the 2008 economic collapse, when banks were behaving badly and assuming they would be bailed out no matter what they did, those in charge of the relevant agencies this time around opted to pseudo-bail out SVB, making all depositor money available by tapping into an insurance fund that banks pay into, and this would allow SVB to cover deposits when necessary until the bank itself could shore up their monetary holdings, so that no one would have to worry. Everyone would be able to pay their bills and employees, and no other banks would experience bank runs that would cause similar collapses in the meantime. As part of this effort, the FDIC and adjacent agencies also pseudo-bailed out Signature Bank, which, like SVB, had one of the highest percentages of uninsured deposits in the country. It was in fourth place, compared to SVB's first place. Though Signature was notable in that it was also one of the few banks, other than the recently shut down Silvergate, which I mentioned in the intro, to seriously deal with and even go out of its way to attract crypto companies and their assets. In both cases, I call this a pseudo-bailout because no taxpayer dollars were used to make depositor money available to those who wanted it. It came from that bank-paid insurance fund. And because those running the bank and folks invested in the banks, stockholders and such, did not get bailed out, just the depositors. And the banks themselves were seized by the government. The idea was to prevent a banking contagion, which could make people worry that their bank might be next, which could then spark a series of other cascading bank runs across the United States. That would lead to more similar situations, not because all these banks are as loaded up with uninsured deposits as SVB and Signature, but because banks do not have enough money to pay out all the deposits they have all at once. 
They have to keep a certain percentage of their overall deposits available just in case, but the rest is invested in loans, in treasuries, in other sorts of efforts that allow them to earn interest on those deposits. And this is how they make a profit, but also how they pay interest on things like savings accounts. So bank runs are bad in general because that kind of financial world worry, if not nipped in the bud right away, can cause even healthy banks to go under because they can't pay people out when they want to be paid out if everyone rushes into the bank at once to get their money. That money is not there. And that is bad because if it happens enough, if enough people rush into their bank and find that they can't get their money out because everybody had the same idea at the same time, the banking system becomes weak and maybe even partially collapses and people stop putting their money in banks. They stop saving. They start opting for riskier methods of earning interest on their money and protecting their saved money. And sometimes this can lead to more rampant and thoughtless spending because there is no central, safe, slow growth place to put their extra resources, which in turn can lead to speculative bubbles, but also stoke inflation because the economy just cannot slow down and there's no good way to convince people to put their money away in a safe place because perceptually there is no safe place rather than spending it all as soon as they get it. U.S. prosecutors have now reportedly launched a probe into Silicon Valley Bank to ascertain if there was any real deal wrongdoing by those in charge there, or if they just made a bet that ended up being a bad one after interest rate conditions changed. There does seem to be some speculation that none of this would have happened if banking regulations hadn't been weakened during the Trump administration. And it's since been divulged that the leadership at SVB was actively lobbying to get rid of yet more regulations, something that is not uncommon in this and other highly regulated industries. But it's still worth mentioning here, because had there been more assiduous regulations, this bank would probably still be afloat. And the only downside is that those leading it would not have been able to enrich themselves quite as much during their tenure at the helm. This story also went international a few days after SVB and Signature had their moment in the uncomfortable spotlight. The Swiss bank Credit Suisse, which is notorious for its more than a decade of failures and abuses and scandals, including things like bribery, tax evasion, corporate espionage, a horrible risk management record, and money laundering, and which is a true leviathan in the global banking waters, considered to be one of just 30 financial entities in the world that is systemically vital. So if something happens to it, the global financial system is at real risk. Credit Suisse's leadership asked the Swiss Central Bank and banking regulators to step in and backstop them just in case, following an annual report that showed a loss of about $8 billion and, quote, material weaknesses, end quote, in its 2021 and 2022 accounting numbers. The National Bank provided about 50 billion francs to help shore them up, though apparently without doing as much good as hoped. Everyone is still pretty worried about the stability of this banking world linchpin. As of the day I'm recording this, UBS, the third largest bank in Europe, is reportedly in talks 
to acquire all or part of Credit Suisse as part of a larger effort by those involved to further shore up their banking sector. For the same reason, regulators and banking entities are protecting uninsured bank depositors at a few failing banks in the U.S., in order to keep the blight from spreading and to keep overall perception of the banking system in the black. At the moment, Janet Yellen, the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, says the U.S. banking system is fine, there's nothing to worry about, and the allowances made this time around to pay out those uninsured deposits where necessary would not happen again. That was a one-time thing because of how this situation caught everyone off guard and because there was a systemic risk threat involved. That is meant to reassure people today, but also disincentivize the folks running banks from playing fast and loose with the rules like back in 2008, when they all felt they were too big to fail and got insanely wealthy on big bets before passing the bill onto the government when everything started to collapse. It is a very fine line to walk, though, and it's difficult to know whether any of these bankers believe the government when they say that they will not be doing this again, and whether depositors believe the government when they say that everything is okay and we can just trust the banking system. Don't worry about it. U.S. regulators are currently, as I record this, in the process of trying to sell both SVB and Signature banks, and they are exploring different options to make this happen. There's a chance this might mean offering some pretty nice incentives to potential buyers to help these banks look more appealing to potential acquirers, particularly means of reducing the risk any buyer would be taking on by acquiring these assets. For its part, the former parent company of SVB has filed for bankruptcy and is attempting to find buyers for its remaining non-bank assets. As that is going down, other mostly small and regional banks have been getting closer scrutiny, and a few of them have lost a lot of on-paper value, with one, First Republic Bank, only seeming to survive because of an infusion of about $30 billion from other banks, banks that don't want to see the contagion spread, and who basically just opened up accounts at this smaller bank to keep it from going under and, in turn, making things worse for everyone, though things have not looked great for it, even after tens of billions of dollars were added to its books in this way. Now, all that said, bigger banks are reportedly seeing inflows of tens of billions of dollars from depositors who pulled their money from these smaller, perceptually at-risk banks and shifted their assets over to these larger, more perceptually stable banks. So we may see more consolidation in the near term and more small banks go under while the spotlights are looking for anything that seems off kilter, even though the banking system as a whole seems to be trying to prevent more collapses as any one of them could ripple outward and encompass other banks too. We may also soon see the government attempting to punish those in charge of failed banks in some way. The Biden administration has proposed doing exactly that, though the specifics of how that would work are still up in the air. And there is a pretty good chance that this becomes more of a political posturing thing than a real deal disincentive that makes it into law. Banking lobbyists are a pretty powerful force in Washington, D.C. after all. We will also likely continue to see discussions and actions based on concerns about whether this series of events represents a few bad actors in this space or a more broad-based problem that could spiral if not more thoroughly and aggressively addressed. 
One last point is that this could influence the Fed's next moves, as concerns about the banking industry could essentially achieve what another interest rate hike would have achieved in terms of slowing the economy, allowing the Fed to pause for a moment, or at least not hike the interest rate as high as they had otherwise planned, or as rapidly as they had planned. Betting markets currently suggest that a quarter-point hike is most likely at the Fed's upcoming meeting, which would be a step down from the previous most likely-seeming half-point hike, though there is still a small chance they do more than that, or do nothing for a period, to see what would happen, but also maybe to avoid accidentally furthering an already not-ideal banking world scenario with those sorts of additional external pressures. book I'd like to recommend today is called The 2020 Commission Report on the North Korean Nuclear Attacks Against the U.S., a Speculative Novel by Jeffrey Lewis. That last part of the title, A Speculative Novel, is important because the book looks and sounds like a report from a government agency, and that is the style in which it is written. It's as if you are reading an official aftermath written play-by-play of a conflict between the United States and North Korea that involves nuclear attacks on American soil by the North Korean military. I don't want to give away too much more than that, but conceptually, this is something that I found to be appealing right away, and though it gets a little bit dry at times, it's still pretty compelling reading, and the format of it the at times somewhat dry presentation of absolutely horrific facts and figures and a play-by-play that would just be terrifying to live through in real life is part of what makes it so successful, I think. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of the 2020 Commission Report on the North Korean Nuclear Attacks Against the U.S. by Jeffrey Lewis. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript of this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other news-centric podcast, One Sentence News, wherever you get your podcasts or at onesentencenews.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm